All the news you need. Marcus Paul in the morning. Scott has always had a reputation for telling lies. People will say, well, if Australia is prepared, you know, to throw France under the bus, what would they do to us? I mean, our trustworthiness is a national security asset. Nice to have you company. It is Friday. And the 5th day of November 2021, Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, I am excited because, you know, during the whole COVID period, we haven't had people come to join us in the studio for obvious reasons. Now that things are slowly returning to normal, I'm happy to say that we can start inviting our guests on the program back into the studio, which is always so much more fun rather than talking down a telephone. Guess who's here today? The wonderful, the amazing... (laughs) Vanessa Badham from The Guardian. Hello, Van. How are you? This is so exciting. How wonderful is it to be face-to-face? I'm um, wondering, is this your commercial radio in-studio debut? You know, I think it might be my commercial radio uh, (laughs) in-studio debut. Okay. Though I did have a very famous phone call with Stan Zamanik, who people of a certain age would remember, um, where he... Uh, decided I was a, a, a young gentleman. It was this like sort of famous sort of radio moment wow. when I was a student activist. I might have to Google that. And it was it, it was on one YouTube? of those sort of bizarre sort of. I got the phone call from uh, from the. Um, from the studio when I was like out at dinner and so I had all this sort of restaurant noise in the background being yelled at by Stan Zamanek who was like it's men like you young men like you who are wasting their lives and I was like hi and my my dad managed to overhear this strange sort of encounter he was uh, he was quite the character Stan Zamanek not in a good way and um, dad was like yeah I thought you know it's weird there's some guy wandering around with your name Van you know kind of thing so yeah wow so it's great to be back Commercial radio, fantastic. The crux of the phone call, why did you upset old Stan? I mean, he was, you know, a lot. he's a real teddy bear. I know his wife, uh, Marcella, we worked together at um, uh, the Cancer Council, um, and uh, he was really a teddy bear, but he played the part of the of the right-wing nut job. Oh, he did. Team. I mean, he did that brilliantly. And like, that's he what absolutely he went nailed after it. you about? And yeah, and you can imagine, I was like 19 or something, you know, <laughs> oh, with like pink dreadlocks and not that he knew that because no. he thought I was a man. But, you know, it was student activist time in the 90s. Yeah, it yeah. was an exciting time, absolutely. you know, having sit-ins at UTS yeah. and waving flags, and which you should do. If you're a 19-year-old listening to this and you're not waving a flag and having a sit-in, what are you doing? Well, that's right. Uh, well, um, protests have changed a little bit uh, since the 1990s. I remember um, being at a couple at my uni at Charles Sturt. Uh, I mean, a little different to being here in a major city, of course. Not many people, bar a few kangaroos and cows, got to see our protests at Bathurst but Uni. But they appreciated them. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. But, you know, the, the way people are protesting these days has changed somewhat. Um, the narra- uh, narrative from the media toward protesters uh, has changed as well. It used to be something that that I think was appreciated and and covered in a more favourable way. But now, if you protest, you, you you're a pain in the you know what. You're holding up traffic. How you know how dare you disrupt my busy daily life? But people tend to forget it's protests that happen 
way back even to the 60s, and then the 70s, 80s and 90s, it led to the kind of standard of living we have today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you take the risk. Like, protesting is about what are you prepared to do to push this cause? Like, yeah. what do you, are you prepared to take the punishment? Are you prepared to take the disapproval? And that's actually the message. If you have, like, particularly a group of young people whose prospects at that point are, you know, perhaps very broad, very infinite, like, there's a risk that comes with that, but that's how people know you're serious. Yeah. And that's why you look at someone like Greta Thunberg, you know, like, and the amount of criticism she gets and mm. all of and But she knows that. She knows that that's the price and her the shape of her life has changed. Part of because, the gig. Because she's pushing this cause. Mm. And what an incredible impact she's had. Kids all around the world look up to her and there's this whole generation of young people who've got switched on to the challenges that they as a generation will face yeah. because of the risk that she took, you know, and that's really important. It's undeniable. Um, and even for those who oppose her ideals and, and you know, don't believe uh, in what she's trying to sell, they at least know that she's there. So she's cutting through. Um, there are others that I think perhaps uh, push the barrel a little too far. And I don't like the idea of people gluing themselves to main roads. I just think that's silly uh, because there are times when you can perhaps get the, the public offside with what you're trying to... Uh, what you're trying to tell them? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard. Oh, look! It's a it's a line call. It's absolutely yeah. a line call, and it's about tactics. It's about what are you trying to do? Yeah. But you know, uh, in my youth, I was mentored by some. Um, some guys who had been involved because I went to the University of Wollongong and lived in Wollongong for a really long time and I worked with these wonderful guys who by the time I met them were in their 80s who yeah. had been part of you know those amazing union protests from the 1930s onwards you sure. know these were the guys who refused to ship pig iron to Japan yep. and were part of the in the 1930s because of militarism and I like just incredible and they one of the one day they patted me on the shoulder and they went kid if the people aren't behind you the revolution's not happening. And it was just this beautiful moment of generational advice. And yeah. it was like, I'm rather into winning the crowd. Like, And yeah. if you're right, you do. Yep, absolutely. All right, um, the Van Badham story, university, <laughs> there you bit go. of activism. My relationship with my dad, we're just right into it right That's now. That's it. Um, so after uni, um, you decided what career path? Oh, look, it was a bit of a surprise because I was the first kid in my family to go to university. Yeah. Like, I was first in family. So exciting for my parents. Like, this culmination of everything they'd ever done. Yeah. And Dad was like, so what are you going to do? And I went, I'm going to become a feminist avant-garde theatre maker. And he just looked at me with this total blankness. Yeah. Which was, and he actually said, if you want to be creative, maybe you should think about marketing. I think he had his heart set on me doing a law degree, but it just wasn't me. No, no. No. So, as you can imagine, with my degree in feminist avant-garde theatre making, spent a lot of years working in hospo, had a paper route, uh, did medical experiments for money for a while, like Hang put on. together a life. Back the train up. A medi you did medical experiments to earn money? What, you didn't donate a kidney or something? No, no, I did I did amazing... Actually, I did really amazing experiments um, when I was in the UK. So I went to England sure. to 
pursue my career and see how how that went yeah. and had an amazing time but there were some lean times there was you know the the accommodation situation was very threadbare I believe is yeah. the polite way of saying it and lots of living on beans and you know you'd take what job you could in between doing theatre gigs for no money and learning the ropes and having that mm. kind of stage apprenticeship which I really had in Britain. No one approached you for the equivalent back then of Squid Game at least. Yeah what. no well look if it had have been advertised on Gumtree I probably <laughs> probably would have considered it. Wow. But I ended up I mean I did all these crazy jobs you know wiping tables and you know collecting rubbish selling mattresses like bizarre things hmm. but I was put on a list of uh, subjects for psychological um for psychological studies that were being done. This was amazing. So I was part of this big study where they were looking at risk behaviour and economic decision-making, and they brought in all of these groups of people, and we didn't know if we were the placebo or if we were the caffeinated group. Or, <laughs> yeah, and we were given you don't know. No, yeah. and yeah. we were given money to gamble and given the odds of what we were gambling on. So it was like a card game, and you got paid based on what you retained after paying this card game. And it was like... Amazing, But what they were proving is that people don't make good economic decisions, even when they know what the risks are, Mm. if they're under emotional pressure or if they're in an unstable environment. So they had all of these sort of things going on that were distracting and going, there is no logic to how people behave economically. People behave emotionally economically. And, you know, the system that we live in, people make bad decisions because they have bad things going on in their lives. And that's fair enough. And it's like, I love that they had to do a paid study. Like, one would one would suspect that that was common sense, but that's mm. not how the world's financial system operates. We pretend everybody's a robot and, yeah. So, that I mean, that was the kind of stuff that I did. But, okay. it was I mean, it was hard work. Mm. It was hard work. Like, when you're trying to have a full-time theatre career and, you know, mopping toilet floors at a cafe at 7 o'clock in the morning, it's hard. So, the theatre career, though, did take off. Fortunately, yes. Mm. Fortunately, it did. Okay. And it was a happy day when I didn't have to wear my apron when I got up in the morning. But I still have that apron to remind me where I came from and all the things that I learned. Yeah, wonderful. So uh, the theatre career led to what? Oh, well, I came back to Australia. Mm -hmm. This is amazing that we're having this chat. I came back to Australia in 2011 because I got a job in Melbourne. I'm originally from Sydney, Wollongong. So I took up this job in Melbourne and started working at the Malthouse Theatre, which was my dream job. And I was working with other writers and making theatre all the time, working with some of Australia's best theatre artists. And it was like a complete dream. Wonderful. And I'd been there four months when I found out my father had cancer and was dying. And then I just, I couldn't my love affair with the theatre went on hiatus. It's very difficult when you are going through something very real Mm. to be in a place which is all about making it up. Creative. Yes. So I was going through really solid painful stuff with dad and watching dad die and my father was my best friend so it was really difficult and I just couldn't I just couldn't do the job I couldn't concentrate on you know the puppets and the lights it was just not where I was at and a friend of mine after dad died I had been in deep deep grief and I was up in Sydney on bereavement leave with my mother and a friend called and she said look you have to leave the house your dad would want you to leave the house you are gaining nothing by just being sad all the time come and do a crazy feminist comedy night yeah. At uh, the ve- there's the venue in Newtown. I can't remember the name. The it's not the Vault. 
oh, I can't remember the name of the. It'll hit you. Probably around it will hit me around four o'clock this yeah, afternoon, yeah, definitely. Exactly. Yeah, and so there were a bunch of us. It was like a panel show. Nakia Louie was there, and people okay. like that. And it was all you know, pretty loose. And I was expecting kind of Melbourne crowd, and you know, doing obscene jokes and the rest of it. And <laughs> and, there, and and then the lights came on, and it wasn't your sort of green haired RMIT undergraduate laughing along. It was all these sort of serious looking women in suits, and they had been laughing, which was something. But I was yeah. like. Oh my god, who I've I've been doing jokes in front of, <laughs> like what have I done? Because I'm so short sighted. Like I could yeah. anyway. Yeah. And I got a phone call a couple of days later saying we saw you at the Vanguard. That's the, the name Vanguard. Of the place. There you go. There we go. Earlier than yeah. four o'clock. And they said, "What do you think about writing a column for the Guardian?" And I was I thought it was a prank call. I was like, okay. "The Guardian, like the UK newspaper I have read yep. every day of my life for the past ten years. Mm. Are you crazy?" Like I was doing jokes about wearing flannelette shirts and you know and they were like we we think it's great and you know we're interested by the fact you went to state school and you're a bogan from the suburbs that's interesting <laughs> and i was like someone finds that that's really that's interesting yeah and they were like yeah and i've been there ever since and it was amazing it was just one of those things like Fantastic. my life had changed and then i was doing this fun thing i mean you know what it's like but people seem to think that there's you know this great sort of strategy involved in in career planning yeah. and it was literally me doing terrible jokes in the depth of grief at a feminist comedy night there we go yeah so that was the start of the the author career if you like and, <laughs> and the uh, and the the transition uh, although you know theater's still there but you were then moving on to to start to be uh, well uh, read and, and Diversified and portfolio career, I, yeah, I sure. believe they call having several uh, work contracts at the same time. No, that's good. <laughs> it's good to have as is many Is that fun? Is that a good story? Fire. That's a great story. Um, we'll come back with more of it because I want to find out about what led to you uh, getting this bigger profile by appearing on Q&A. Uh, oh. And how many people you upset by being on Q&A and so many. stirring up the pot. So many. Which is what it's all about. Oh, yeah, I'm in. You can't create discussions if you're just a yes person. No. And if you're just, you know, a fence sitter or, you know, it, it, that's boring. It's boring in radio, in talkback. It's boring. That's why occasionally I'll fire up at people. If they say something I don't like, I'll tell them. And, oh, everyone's all shocked. And, no, oh, you can't say that about that. Of course you can. Yeah, if I want to get along with people I disagree with, I'll hang out with my friends. You know what I mean? Yep, That's... yep, yep. Good stuff. All right, quick break. Our uh, in-studio guest for Friday today is Van Batten. Marcus Paul in the morning. We'll check that traffic for our Sydney listeners. Marcus Paul has Sydney talking on 2SM. Welcome back. Uh, 25 and a half minutes after 8, taking us up to the news. Uh, we have an in-studio guest, uh, which is wonderful. We're going to start doing this more and more often. Uh, the wonderful Van Batham from The Guardian. <laughs> Van, uh, you caused a little bit of stir on the ABC's Guardian. Uh, Guardian. Uh, on the ABC's Q&A program. More uh, than once. Yeah, more than once. More than once. I uh, sallied forth and uh, yeah. caught the consequences. All right, well, this is uh, you taking on... Uh, well, not... Did you take him on? Was he there? Was Barnaby there? No, but he'd been opining. Okay. All right, let's have a listen. I can't think of anything I'd rather know less about than a politician's sex life. And I like Terry. <laughs> and I just... I, I, I lived in England for such a long time in that sleazy tabloid culture of you know, the most horrible kind of paraphernalia associated with politicians' sex lives imaginable. And I'm not interested. Adults are complicated. If adults have consenting relationships with other adults, that is their business, whether it's one partner or many. And I think, you know, as we get older, we become very aware that uh, there's now as queer as folk. 
Barnaby Joyce is an international news item, not because he's had an affair uh, with the staff or anyone else. He's an international news item because he is a massive, staggering hypocrite and is a person who passed judgment on the LGBTQI community in this country. He's also passed judgment on young women. He personally tried to stop uh, a vaccine that prevented cervical cancer from going on the PBS because, according to him, it would make young women promiscuous. My God, Barnaby, how awful. Um, and and his comments around marriage equality, you know, as somebody who watched their friends and their family members go through two months of orchestrated public political hell with the postal survey, I find his conduct absolutely disgraceful. If he wants to affirm a traditional view of marriage and not live up to it, I think his time of judging other people's personal lives is over. All right, uh, Van's greatest hits on Q&A. <laughs> uh, that, you would have really endowed yourself to the right with those comments. Well, look, I'm in it for a good time, not a long time. Fair and enough. And opportunities yeah. for people like me. Like, I, I mean, this is why I'm always so staggered. Like, mm. um, I, I never had any expectation when I was at school or even at university that I would have a media platform. And yep. I represent a neighbourhood and a community that's pretty underrepresented in the media. So if you get the platform, speak your truth, I yeah. reckon. And the Barnaby Joyce staff, I mean, his continuing presence in Australian public life, I just <laughs> I find embarrassing. I mean, that video of him going, I just want the government out of your, out of my life. And I'm like, resign. You're the Deputy Prime Minister. Like, literally, any minute now, if you want government well, out of your odd. life. That was odd. Uh, but there have been so many issues. But what I was talking about in that clip about the cervical cancer vaccine, yep. yeah, he campaigned against it, saying that it would make young women promiscuous. Well, there's a news item out today that that vaccine has actually halved the cases Yes. of cervical cancer. Like, it's an amazing piece of you know, medical technology that is saving lives, and he personally campaigned on the basis of some lunatic idea about, you know, who girls are or what they can be or how they should behave related to a vaccine. Yeah. And there he was, of course, um, you know, not living up to the traditional values. Mm, having family values. He, he just involved more than one family, yeah. Well, all right. Um, Barnaby today. Um, Worse than ever. Okay. Deputy Prime Minister. Whenever I hear the words acting Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, like, I, I break out in a rash, basically. Like, I just, <laughs> thank God we don't have a nuclear arsenal, you know? And this yeah. is why I'm really worried about those nuclear submarines. You know, we get those nuclear submarines. Somebody like Barnaby might have responsibility for them. Oh, well, they won't be here for another 30-odd years. Or so 300 years, the yeah. way we're going after we're conquered by France. Barnaby you know? will be around by them. Well, certainly not in <laughs> public life don't anyway. Don't they just resurrect them? They pump them full of fluid and give them a machine and they keep... I mean, I've got to go to the news in about 30 seconds, but in 30 seconds, I want you, I'm just going to throw a, a term at you and I want to get your response. And we talked about it with One Nation just prior to the, you coming on. Alan Jones, Senator for New South Wales, representing One Nation. Well, I think it's great that you've had somebody transcribing my nightmares, Marcus. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, what an amazing piece of technology, whoever's been leaping into my head and pulling out my deepest fears. I think that's really well done. Whoever's behind that amazing piece of software, well done you. Oh, my God. All right. <laughs> oh, my God. So, just reading between the lines, which is a little hard, you wouldn't go for it. Fair enough. Okay, news time now. Van Batam is our guest in studio. Y'all ready? Y'all ready? Y'all ready? 
If it's happening in New South Wales today, you'll hear it here on Marcus Ball in the Morning on 2SM. Welcome back. 22 minutes away from 9 o'clock. Nice to have your company. Something a little different we're doing today. Uh, and from today, now that, you know, we are seeing the, the backside of COVID, thank goodness, uh, we are starting to get guests on Friday into the studio. Van Badham, Guardian columnist and all-round bad biatch. <laughs> You like that? Oh, <laughs> uh, look, you know, I, I'm up for it. Yeah. I'm up for it. Okay. Someone's got to do it. It might as well be me. All right, so we, we played one of your greatest hits from Q&A where you took on Barnaby Joyce, and that was fun. Um, now, you appeared there on numerous occasions, and you became one of those... I don't know, one of those n- crazy feminists that the right just hated and wanted to always attack because, I don't know, you were a little different. Or you're from the... I hate labels, but, you, you know, you're from little like me. You're from the left. And you're, you're a little different. You care about social issues. You care about the equal distribution of wealth, um, you know, within reason. Yeah, and, and jobs and being yeah. paid fairly. And, yeah. you know, I think that's the biggest problem, Marcus, is that... You know, there's a lot of talking about working people in this country by people who are not from the community that I'm from, you know, and I had all that stuff growing up. My dad lost his job when I was a kid and it was the most devastating experience of our collective lives. And that experience of unemployed dads in working class communities is really difficult. And we had some really tough and difficult times. Like when I talk about workplace rights and industrial relations and the importance of being in a union, it's because the union got my dad his job back. Okay. You know, and it's that kind of stuff. And for these guys who push these politics of division, who, you know, think that the economy is only something that exists for rich people, who push the lies about trickle-down economics that we all know are lies because it's been 40 years and I, I haven't seen anything trickle down. The problem with someone like me is that I speak authentically from the people that I'm from. So they like to put all of these labels on me, you know, crazy feminist and whatever, because the idea that someone who for the majority of their working life was working behind a bar would say actually your politics and your economics are a lie and you push them to manipulate people and exploit them that's really confronting so they've got to paint me like some kind of loon because ordinary state school girl is not what they want. All right. well let's talk about uh, the division uh, that exists in the political um, spectrum these days I, growing up when I was at uni, I I never heard of terms like the left or the right. I always knew, of course, Labor and Liberal National Party and, uh, well, the old country party. But there was, these terms left and right didn't exist. Why are the labels there today? And why is there now such a divide, if you like, um, between society uh, and traditionally, as we know, those who are on the supposed left of, of politics usually might vote Labor or perhaps to a lesser extent the Greens those on the right will vote for the Liberal National Party, the Coalition or on the extreme right One Nation and others How did this all come about? Well, I mean, we can go back into the history of it. You know, the terms left and right come from, I think it was in Germany, I think it was Hegel, one of the philosophers, and they used to sit in sort of different wings of the room based on their politics. And in France, uh, after the revolution, there was a division in society in their post 
aristocracy, the people who were considered on the right, who sat on the right of the assembly, they thought in terms of land owning and property and, you know, preserving a sort of economic elite. And those who sat on the left were interested in sharing democratic rights. Yep. And really, that's what it gets down to. Is that to. socialism, though? Well, I mean, it's socialism, social democracy, yeah. um, cooperativism, communitarianism. I mean, there are no, we can, See, the there, a bunch is, of different ideological when you, terms. When you bring up the term socialism, people automatically, uh, for whatever reason, rightly or probably wrongly you know uh, associate that closely with communism they're two completely and utterly effectively different things yeah if you want to talk about socialism let's look at scandinavia let's look at norway where they have a sovereign wealth fund where they went oh we've got all this oil maybe we should think about the future and all the things that we want to fund and we'll take state ownership of that that's socialism providing a welfare state cradle to grave supports you never have to be frightened about your family being destroyed and is it if any you've got a medical bill that scandinavians uh, nations like norway have consistently top the lists of the happiest people on the planet. Yeah, and Finland, which is a tiny country, like yeah. 5 million people, has the best education system in the world. Relentlessly so turns out... So they are the out, real lucky countries. Well, yeah, and if, like, let's talk about socialism, let's talk about post-war Britain, when they built the National Health Service, like literally one of the glittering jewels of British civilization was a health system, and I had the benefit of that system when I lived in England. Yeah. Um, just amazing. That's socialism. If we're talking about you know, communist authoritarianism, I am not a fan. I do not like secret police. I don't like the idea of artists being banned from expressing opinions. Sure. You know, all of those things. They are right out. I'm a democracy enthusiast, Marcus. Like, yep. I'm into the idea of people electing a government, even if it's a government I don't like. I'm on board because it's better than all the other alternatives. Absolutely. Uh, the state of play uh, of Australian politics... At the moment, uh, there has never been a greater divide, in my opinion. Not too many are sitting in the centre these days. It's You're either uh, left or right. Um, we've had a, um, a, a right-wing government, the Liberal National Party, in power now for going on, uh, what, two terms? Uh, there is some... Oh, no, it's more than that. I mean, it's all a blur. I mean, we've had three Prime Ministers in the past ten minutes, so, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But is there uh, appetite for change? I guess that's the question. Uh, I mean, the debate at the moment is, and just putting aside the, the personality of, uh, of Morrison, because I know what you'll say there, you, you're similar to me, uh, and, and Barnaby Joyce, because I know what you'll say, you're similar to me. You've said it many times every day for the All past right. 10 years. But yeah. is there a decent alternative out there? Because I hear a lot, and I, as you know, I, I'm probably one of the only journos who will speak constantly uh, to Labor politicians or to the opposition because that's obviously the, the role I play with this show but some of the criticism we get is that oh well you know Anthony Albanese really really nice guy but he's not a leader Really, really nice guy who grew up in public housing yep. and has an experience of what it's like to have nothing. Yep. And I rather like the idea of someone pitching for government in this country who actually understands what it's like to have no money, to be reliant on support and to seize the opportunity that you get given. I mean, he went to Sydney Uni, you know, he, he did the work. Yep. He, he has, ra opposed to a lot of people who might see opportunity as being a selfish, you know, experience. Well, I'm going to get out and I'm going to tear up the ladder behind me. Yeah. Like, Albanese's experience of how he grew up instilled in him a set of values about providing opportunities for the people who came after him. And that's the difference. That's the left-wing difference. It's about sharing. It's about going, you know, how can we create opportunities 
for everyone rather than how do I keep these opportunities to myself. And the reason why politics... Is that fair, though? Is that fair to say that those who are on the... I mean, because I, obviously, I, I know people who are um, a part of the Liberal um, apparatchik and, I, I, and they're lovely people and they're wonderful people. But I do understand the point you're saying. They are also quite successful in the main. Is it fair just to say that everybody who supports the right side or the the Liberal or National Party, uh, that they're selfish and they're only in it for themselves and their own game? Not at all. I mean, I think one of the things... I think the really interesting thing about the political moment that we're in... Yeah. um, Because I have a lot of respect for people who I would describe as being on the centre-right. Yep. You know, people who believe... Because right-wing values, they're not... just about greed and they're not just about wealth they're, okay. they that's are the about yeah yep. like economically that's the big difference you know like who who gets to control the resources a smaller number of people or everyone okay and obviously with the liberals pushing things like privatization and selling shared assets like i'm against that like, oh, absolutely. absolutely against 100%. that and the majority of australians by the way even a lot of liberal voters are against that but traditionally when we looked at sort of center right conservative positions it was about things like preserving institutions like the rule of law and having in this country an independent judiciary and that there are processes and ways for things to happen yeah and I think part of the confusion, and you can see this in the United States as well, somebody like Trump comes along or someone like Scott Morrison, and all the things that we would see as admirable conservative values, principles of, you know, how to behave and these sort of establishment politics just get shredded. I mean, what Morrison did to Macron is just disgusting. There is no way that somebody like Malcolm Fraser, like Malcolm Fraser, who no. participated in the dismissal of Gough Whitlam, yep. there is, would have been absolutely horrified by this sort of bad faith dealing that Morrison has well, engaged with. Well, first of all, there were no mobile phones back in those days, so you couldn't text. But, but the point is valid. Um, and it, is Scott Morrison Trump-like in that, in other words, is his bedside banner so gruff that it's become embarrassing for uh, Australians? It is so embarrassing. If I was a career diplomat, yeah. I would absolutely be hiding under my blanket at the moment. Okay. Because how do you go out mm. and face all of your international confrères, you know, like you're negotiating with Kiribati, which is one of those countries totally threatened by um, rising sea levels and yep. climate change. Yep. How, do you negotiate, how do you negotiate fairly with the United United States and all of its complex machinations. How do you go to the Germans or the Italians or the Japanese or anybody else? Yep. The whole world knows that the Prime Minister of Australia lied to Emmanuel Macron. Okay. Uh, what about those on the right who then would say, well, hang on, I'm Australian, goddammit, and I believe my Prime Minister. I believe Scott Morrison. I would believe him before I believe Emmanuel Macron because otherwise it's un-Australian. It's un-Australian to criticise the Prime Minister and to, if you like, for want of a better word, side with Emmanuel Macron uh, because then you're almost traitorous. I mean, that's that's... I can show you a dozen emails that I've received this week uh, because I've obviously taken the line of I'm embarrassed. Uh, I uh, I kind of believe Malcolm Turnbull, even though Malcolm's had his own issues, uh, putting him aside, 
I believe him when he says, oh, I've been lied to by Scott Morrison. But everybody's seen it. I mean, this is the thing. And I just find it outrageous. If you you love your country and you love your community, you love things like honesty and respect and truth. They're Australian values to me. Like, And I I question what country they've been living in if they think it's un-Australian to criticise the Prime Minister. I've criticised Prime Ministers I've voted for. Like, that's the Australian way. That's the healthy attitude of a democracy towards its leadership. We should be on their backs all the time. It doesn't matter if they're left, right or indifferent. We should be yeah. holding our politicians to account because these are the people who can lead us into wars, who determines who gets jobs and who doesn't, who can cut off welfare like that. Yeah. Like, I find that outrageous and I find it really unpatriotic to be so unquestioningly loyal to an individual as opposed to the country that we're from. But he knows what he's doing. Scott Morrison knows exactly what he's doing. He's wrapping himself in the Australian flag. He's, you know, employing the jingoism and the mar- Marketing and the the spiel that he's so well known for, Van. I can see you, your brow starting to furrow as you get cranky about it. But that's what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's playing to the mob, and that is, if I if I wrap myself enough as I can in the Australian flag, and I inherit, uh, you know, the wonderful uh, work uh, that Australian forces have done in recent times, and you know those uh, those bloody frogs. What they should do is they should thank us, considering how many diggers are buried and from mole and all those places in France and all the rest of it. And just as if to hammer home the point, on the way back from the COP26 and the G20. What does he do? He goes and visits Aussie diggers in Afga- in Dubai who helped with the repatriation in Afghanistan that he was actually uh, led to kicking and screaming in the first place. Uh, look, I just, I find, I just find it so fake and I think the majority of Australians can see through it. You know, if you're paying attention to the news and you have seen the absolute, like if you love this country, you don't bring shame to it. You don't tell lies, especially not when you're representing everybody who lives here. Like I said, Australian values are about honesty and they're about democracy and fair dealing. And he has hurt this country by his behaviour. He has threatened trade relationships and he's threatened military alliances. Like, Australia has become... bad? Oh, yes. Absolutely. There were text messages between Scott Morrison and another head of state, Emmanuel Macron, that were mysteriously leaked to three Australian newspapers. Mm. Like, that is not okay. And if you were the leader of another country, when would you trust Australia? Would you trust us? Would you trust the Morrison administration? Probably not. No. I mean, even the um, the French ambassador in Canberra at the press club just the other day said 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 as much said that how on earth can this this current Australian government be trusted on a national stage when if you know what are conceived to be private text messages or private correspondence between two leaders are leaked by the Prime Minister of Australia, why on earth would you want to enter into an important trade deal or even more so a military deal? Who could trust him? I mean, this is the question. Who could trust him? And to have Turnbull come out and go, his reputation has always been for being slippery. He lied to me when I was Prime Minister. He's lied to one of our most important allies. And, like, where does this carry on? Does everybody think he's suddenly going to be honest with the Australian people? I noticed, Marcus Paul, that uh, Scott Morrison promised we'd get a National Integrity Commission more than a thousand days ago. Because that's what a Scott Morrison promise is worth. Nothing. Nothing. A thousand days from that promise. And yet, all of these corruption scandals with his people, and yet that commission is yet to materialise. I wonder why. All right. Van Badham is my guest this morning. Um, We could go on 
and on and on and we will and on we totally will <laughs> you like that you like that little and on and on and on segue I just want to point out Marcus yeah. is currently holding a copy of my new book Q and on and on a shocking and sh- uh, sorry a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults by Van Batham. Okay, Van, tell me again. Uh, we've spoken about the book. you got a big launch coming up in I've a couple of weeks. I've got a big launch, yeah, on the 16th down in Melbourne. All right, who's hosting your launch? Bill Shorten. I thought you were going to say Alan Jones. No, no, I mean... You could, uh, he was busy, was he? Alan's very unavailable these days. Right, oh, okay. No, he, he's quite available, actually. I was going to say. Alan, if you're listening... You can send him a, a, an invite. I will. I, feel, I, I mean, I do feel sorry for him, but he's got... <laughs> I mean, living in the consequences of your own behaviour, if you're Alan Jones, would be a terrible place to Anyway, uh, we digress. <laughs> Cue it on and on, because you might join the network, you never know, and then I'll be out of my house. A short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults. Uh, tell me, um, we've got a few minutes left about the book. Okay, so I get a lot of abuse on the internet, <laughs> uh, uh, which the I'm club. sure is hugely surprising. And a couple of years ago, because I, I always look up who's abusing me, you know, I put lists together, and I, I have to protect myself as you can imagine. And I started seeing these accounts that had these really weird sort of catchphrases. Yeah. You know, light versus dark and people accusing me of being a lizard person. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, sometimes I forget to wear makeup. I'm sloppy, but I don't, I don't, do not resemble a lizard. No, and, um, I can vouch for that. Thank you, thank you. And, um, but I was just like, what is this? And I became aware of this this conspiracy theory which is called the QAnon conspiracy theory yep. where you know people believe and these are myths that are two and a half thousand years old that are you know secret underground cabal of elites are plotting everything and snatching children and drinking their screams to stay young and oh, stuff like that dear, dear. and of course over the course of the pandemic people <laughs> trapped inside with the internet being in distress you know a surprising number of people got into this and I asked my Twitter and Facebook following have you ever encountered somebody who believes this yeah. stuff and like hundreds of people were like, you know, my no. my uncle, you know, my cousin, my brother, my dad, like it's it's all, you know, my mum. And there was this community of people who'd been seriously sort of bereaved mm. by people believing in like lizard people and child snatchers and that the world was the plot of Monsters, Inc. So <laughs> I started, I went undercover, I started researching from within the community and then yep. I stumbled onto how these people are weaponized by political actors and it becomes quite a story about disinformation and how yeah. the internet is used to politically manipulate people. And I've got to say, writing the book was completely disturbing, but not been. boring, not boring. All right, it sounds fascinating. Make sure you check it out. Uh, we'll put a link up. Uh, it's available now. The seven that comes out, you can pre-order it. Pre-order it. We'll From where all up. good books are sold. Q on and on. Um, Q and on and on and on and on. Thank you, Van, for joining us. It's been wonderful you catching up with me in the studio. We'll continue our chats to Everyone, make the world a better place. He gave me a bunch of flowers. He's wonderful. Thank you, Marcus. That's okay. They cost $7 and <laughs> bought from Bullies on the way to work. Van, have a wonderful day.